0: Welcome to A4N, or A-N-N-N-N, the Artificial Neural Network News Network, the show about the latest developments in AI, machine learning, and data science, where we both introduce technical aspects, as well as discuss the social implications of these advances. In today's inaugural episode, we'll be covering real-time facial recognition that may spell the end of privacy, cheating in the famed Kegel data science competition platform, deep learning algorithms that predict protein structure, and finally using data both to hire software engineers and to become an AI researcher yourself. My name is John Crone. I'm here with my co-host Andrew Vlahooten, Grant Balevelt, and Vince the II. Let's get this started. In our first segment, global headline news, we have some uh, maybe disturbing news out of the uh, Metropolitan Police Force in London.
1: Yeah, you know, London's been known for a long time for its excessive, many would say, use of CCTV in monitoring the goings on in the city. Um, we've seen, uh, what's his name? Banksy. How'd I forget Banksy? We've seen Banksy uh, have some commentary on that and some of his art. And it seems like they're taking this to the next level by introducing live facial recognition into the system. Uh, this is obviously very concerning to privacy advocates and a lot of data scientists and machine learning practitioners, particularly uh, in the context of what's happening to that data. What are the implications of using this type of technology to identify and pursue criminals? And, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Police, one of their representatives in this article, they talk a lot about the justifications for using it. And what they talk about is they keep pointing to public. Uh, perceptions and the opinions of the public about this, the stat that they talk about is uh, here's a quote. They, read, they say that 80% of people surveyed backed the move. Um, and I find that kind of concerning. I don't really feel like that's a very convincing argument because yeah. you know how many people are using online platforms with extremely questionable and potentially
0: dangerous privacy implications? And it's and there's also another spokesman. I mean, so the Met themselves say that the system was seventy percent effective at spotting wanted suspects. So you know we're kind of getting to high numbers, reassuring numbers. Um, and uh, then in fact, um, someone at Essex University, Professor Pete Fussy, um, he was fussy about uh, his results. Um, so he did a independent review of their public trials on behalf of the force. And he found it was only accurate in 19% of cases. And he says, I stand by our findings, I don't know how they get to 70%.
1: Yeah, one of the really concerning parts here is the Met themselves say that there is a false identification, so a false false positive in only only one in a thousand cases. And that might sound low, (laughs) but if we put that in a city with millions and millions of people, you're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of false positives every single day. People who could be pursued, have their face tracked in a database indefinitely with unknown long-term consequences
2: because of of this type of error rate. I just, I wouldn't want my face in it. Yeah, I mean, that logic every single train that comes into a station on the subway is gonna have one person flagged every single morning.
0: Yeah. Like uh, erroneously. Yes. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. and they talk in here about as well about uh they mention that it's less effective at nighttime and works best with good daylight. And to me that sounds pretty consistent with a known problem in computer version, which is that those with dark complexions Uh, particularly minorities who are already disproportionately affected by this type of technology, uh, by which I mean mass surveillance and law enforcement more broadly, uh,
2: it seems like they could be at higher risk for these false positives. And criminals tend to walk around during the day, not ever at night. (laughs) Right. right? (laughs) Exactly, it's convenient.
0: Uh, (laughs) And look directly into the camera.
2: (laughs) New new trick is smile for the camera and do crime in the daylight, I guess. (laughs)
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, a big part of this as well that I am concerned about is where they're deploying it. A big problem we have here in the United States is that we tend to have this positive feedback loop of law enforcement targeting areas that are known for having high rates of crime, which is defined by increased police presence. And so you have the targeting of certain vulnerable populations by police, which results in greater, um, greater, purported rates of crime, which is then used to justify greater police presence in these communities. And I think we're seeing the same thing here, because the uh, someone named Mr. F. Grave from The Met says, quote, the Met will begin operationally deploying live facial recognitions at locations where intelligence suggests we are most likely to locate serious offenders, right. unquote. So I have very real concerns about the same kind of situation happening where we end up in this positive feedback loop of, Catching people uh, in the same locations that we've historically defined as high crime areas because of discriminatory policing. Uh,
0: a funny example, I mean, not uh, an interesting example, maybe I shouldn't say funny example, but uh, talking about putting cameras in areas where you're likely to find people, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, these technologies started to, to be used in China. So, China is a leader in facial recognition AI technology. Um, they have access to a lot more data than people in the West. Um, so uh, various levels of government are comfortable with sharing uh, data with um, state-backed corporations. And so two of the biggest um, uh, unicorn uh, startups right now are actually Chinese facial recognition companies. And so uh, they, they might be more advanced than what we have in the West. They also have armies of people labeling cheaply in China. Um, so that provides uh, stronger data sets. And anyway, so it's been a couple of years that the Chinese government uh, in various places has been deploying this kind of technology. Uh, most recently, we have it come up as being deployed to uh, en masse uh, surveil uh, the Uyghurs, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but uh, Turkic Muslims uh, in the west of China. And <clears throat> years ago, already um, in a, in a slightly, I guess, slightly less nefarious sounding use, but an early use, um, they were putting these cameras at beer festivals. So as you entered a beer festival, everybody had their face detected by a face recognition camera. And this was kind of like an early use case where they were like, yeah, we, we successfully found three people who had been on on the on the lam for years. Um, anyway, so I guess it's, it's been around for a long time, and I'm not sure that um, that this is something we want to be following uh, China's lead on and having this kind of mass balance. I mean,
2: if we're going to follow leads, um, Russia just... Deployed this in Moscow. It's um, apparently the biggest ever deployment. Moscow has something like 160,000 CCTV cameras, and they're rolling this out citywide. Um, it's also worth noting, I guess, that <clears throat> this uh, this approach has been used in archival footage for a really long time. Um, so these approaches are novel in the sense that they're happening sort of real in time. real time, which yeah. makes the process a little a little different. Um, in archival footage, you always have the opportunity to go back and. Um, double check that you are actually spotting the person you're looking for or whatever it may be. Yeah. I
1: mean, one of my concerns just more broadly is that we're entering a, a, a regime where we are so using good. our technology. Thank you. Yeah. A regime in which our technology is is being used to ostensibly keep us safe, but is in actuality creating a false sense of danger in the world, which makes us more vulnerable to exploitation by these types of technologies. So for example, I think uh, about Ring and all of the controversy around Ring right now uh, and how it's being How's used it? by Ring, the home security Amazon service. doorbells. Oh. Yeah. So they partner very closely with law enforcement to the point where you can directly right. give law enforcement unwarranted access to your footage. And law enforcement uh, agencies have been giving f- given free Ring products for- by Amazon to distribute to the community. Wow. Um, So it's turning into a warrantless mass surveillance program. Meanwhile, we also have apps like Citizen, which, in my view, uh, give people an unrealistic sense of danger in what are actually pretty safe communities um, by alerting them to every time someone kicks over a trash can or whatever. Um, And I think that those types of things can give us a false sense of insecurity, which make us perhaps a little more comfortable with really invasive and potentially dangerous technologies like live facial recognition.
2: Uh, I had a happier example that we could share as well. I guess maybe not entirely happy, but uh, it also isn't exactly real time, but um, they were uh, recently, I I saw a piece about um, a group that was using facial recognition to scan thousands and thousands of old photos of um, concentration camps during uh, the second world war. Uh, And then people would come through with families of their loved ones who were lost. And using this database, you could then find that person's image in a vast trove of thousands of images, perhaps they're in the background, they're they're small, you wouldn't really notice them. And that kind of helped to, uh, you know, for people who had lost loved ones during the Holocaust, they could then trace back and find out what actually happened to them, like which camp might they've been sent Uh to, where did they actually die? a little bit of sort of clarity on what happened to people, which I thought was kind of a nice um, use of the technology. Yeah. So not always for bad. But. For sure.
1: I, I think where I get concerned is when governments have access to this type of data, that the genie gets out of the bottle in such a way that we don't necessarily know how the data will be used in the future. Right. And, you know, as, um, as policies change, I mean, look at 9-11 and, the Patriot Act and how many of the decisions that came in the legislation that followed that we now regret, but can't really turn
0: back, you know? Yeah, and you get in this situation, the situation, the false sense of security that you described where you you think, okay, well, these things are in place and then you don't want to be the politician that, uh, you know, reverses this decision, you know, doesn't allow Amazon rings to be recording in the neighborhood and then all of a sudden there's a bit of crime and uh, that politician fault. is a bad guy. Yeah, you're soft right? on crime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And so we've talked a lot about the social implications. We also want to make sure we are all data scientists here, and so we want to spend a little bit of time also talking about uh, technical aspects. And so um, for this kind of work, uh, any kind of this facial recognition technology, um, of course, uh, you know, we would all assume we're using convolutional neural networks, um, which are as far as we know by far this, the state-of-the-art way to be doing any of this kind of um, visual spatial spatial recognition. And uh, we've mentioned some of the drawbacks of that technique, it is data hungry. So um, in situations where you have um, some groups that are under sampled, or we don't have um, a lot of photo uh, you know, training data that are taken at nighttime, we can end up with a lot of flaws in these kinds of situations. Um, you know, a lot of wasted time maybe on on, on behalf of the med officers who are patrolling the train station or whatever. Um, and then also, you know, a lot of, you know, this, those kinds of false positives lead to, uh, you know, distress among the, the civilians as well for no reason. Um, so I don't know if there's anything else we want to talk about in terms of. Techniques. Maybe we don't need to get into too much detail.
1: Yeah, in the article, they go a little bit into detail about how they're doing it by identifying what they call face prints. So they identify uh, a number of facial key points, corners of the eyes, top of the ear, tip of the nose, right. the tips, ends of the mouth, and use those and their uh, relationships in space to one another to identify a unique face print for an individual, which they right, compare against right. the database.
2: I wonder how much of that doesn't come down to just kind of Vector math in data science. Uh, it might, you know, uh, the, the way I understand it can be done as well is to is to use a, a convolutional network to essentially transform an image of someone's face into, say, a sixty-four length vector of numbers, and then we can just look for other sixty-four length vectors of numbers which represent other people's faces in the database that are right. close in, uh, you know, close mathematically to that to that vector. Yeah. And in that case, you know, various Numbers in that sixty-four dimensional vector, in in, in a sense, represent features of the face, but not sort of in the classical way that we have come to recognize them.
0: Yeah. So to make this work, uh, it sounds like a kind of way that this could ma- be made to work efficiently. In order to have the initial convolutional neural network be trained, we're going to need training data of lots of points on the face labeled well. Which, as we as I explained earlier, uh, China is a leader. In getting these kinds of labels, um, but I'm sure no, you know, there's no doubt that there are other labeling farms producing that, so we can use that, and then you can uh, run that across a set of um, known felons, and supposedly this technology is only being used on databases of severe criminals, whatever that means, and somebody gets to arbitrarily decide the threshold, but um, then that can be used to annotate those images. Those could be put into say a 64 length vector, and then you have a very efficient way of searching over um, all of the data that you're grabbing in real time. Mm -hmm. All right, so that is enough uh, coverage of our first topic. Um, We have more coming up for you next. All right, our second topic is in the sports section. We have Andrew uh, talking about, well, maybe not sports per se, but competition. And unsportsmanlike behavior—that's for sure. So uh, I understand that there has been uh, some prominent cheating in the Kaggle competition recently.
3: Right, right. So John, um, so you guys know about Kaggle? It was bought by Google a couple of years ago. I actually it, did not know. I did. Uh,
0: I like very vaguely remember that um, now.
3: Wow. So it—it's uh, it, a way for companies to sponsor data science competitions, though. They'll publish their their data. Um, in some cases, it's just for an exercise. People can download it, um, upload their models to solve the problem, and there's a leaderboard. Um, and in a, a lot of cases, though, the company will offer a monetary reward for the, for the team that has the best. Sometimes model, some jobs, and sometimes even jobs. Uh, and it's it's been it was really popular, I think, several years ago, and it, it might be um, waning a little bit. But so this one was a, a competition sponsored by a nonprofit that was trying to figure out how to um, market their pets that they were up for adoption and whether they could track the online listing of the pet to the amount of days it took for it to be adopted. Um, And one team uh, eventually won the competition and blew everybody else out of the water.
0: Do you have have the name of that team? It was like a comically... Bad name. Uh, kind of best, best best petting. Thing. Best petting. <laughs> totally uh, not. That was the same name. Uh, Doesn't make you feel good. Uh, it? <laughs> no, it's not a great name. Uh, so the way these things work is, uh,
3: you have they they offer a, a set of labeled data and then they offer some set of um, unlabeled data, and you can use that data however you see fit um, to come up with the model, uh, and then you can upload it. Uh, And then there's some unlabeled data that they give you that then you upload your scores on that data and then whoever's got the best uh, result wins Uh, So what happened was this team uh, who had some prominent um, People on it. So if you're really into Kaggle and you're really good at Kaggle, you can earn points If you earn points you become masters and grandmasters and they had a couple grandmasters on this team right and uh, Shortly after the competition, the nonprofit reached out to somebody totally different, who was, I think, an intern at the time. Um, can you take this model, or at least the top three models, and put them into production, that we can actually use them in real life? And so he started looking, at it. he could not figure out why this team won. Uh, and so he, um, he wrote a really good blog post that, that's, that's linked in this article, talking about eventually how it took him a couple months to um, deconstruct the code it turns out this uh, this winning team had scraped uh, decisions off the website of this nonprofit and then encoded them in a rather clever, although not ridiculously hard to find out way. Right. Um, uh, enough so that when you read it, it takes a couple of times to read it to figure it out. But then you could see how somebody could like deconstruct the, the hashing algorithm. Right. Um, so basically, ten percent of the time, every time this went to uh, uh, to predict um, an adoption or the time it took for an adoption it just used the results that it had already found from the website.
0: All right um, So and they've done this before right this is something this was like this was a, a Kaggle Grandmaster um, so from the company h2o.ai which is like an open source um, AI software platform that's supposed to make building AI tools easier. They are very proud of all the Kaggle grandmasters they have. They claim to have one of the largest teams of Kaggle Grandmasters in the world. And so I guess there's like a lot of pressure. And so this particular individual on the team uh, who has now been fired from H2O.ai, he's admitted to, actually, he's kind of, he kind of honed this approach of, he maybe even became a Grand, I don't know, maybe not didn't become a Grandmaster, but uh, maintained some of his Grandmaster status by uh, repeatedly Using this approach for script using tra- scraping data from the internet that would then, in some cases, be used in the evaluation data set in Kaggle, and having this like inbuilt hash to store attributes about those data. Yeah, so he did
3: it at least one one other time. It looks maybe like it was uh, he was protesting the fact that you can use like some pre-trained models on the thing, um, and then a couple other times he's yeah he's he's done some questionable. Actions and so now he's banned from Kaggle, as well as his. Um, there were three people on the team; two of them had been banned. Um, it didn't go into why the other guy wasn't.
0: Um, um.
3: But it was uh, uh, he did he did offer. He came out with a statement and said exactly that. He wanted to maintain this grandmaster uh, uh, title. It was more about the points. He offered to try to give the money back. Mm. Um, but the question I had for the three of you guys, based on this, is: Do you think Kaggle is often sort of recommended for people breaking into data science, to hey hone your skills, um, put it on your resume that you know you, you were in the top ten percent or something? Do you think that that is still useful for people trying mm. to break into data science, or do you think that's sort of played out and so much that it's so much it's so easy to cheat? It doesn't really teach you anything because maybe the data is. To pre-calculated. Yeah, um, I think, think
2: I think it's definitely played out. Um, I think that it was played out when I was getting into the field. Um, so, you know, I came from a non-classical background, uh, didn't have any formal computer science training, and so I used YouTube and Coursera and EdX and Kaggle to like learn what I needed to learn, and I learned a lot. Don't get me wrong, but I think relying on the rankings to then. Uh, measure a candidate. So, you know, a candidate comes in, you're looking to hire a new data scientist, and you want to know um, how many Kaggle competitions they've entered and, and what their scores were. I think that that's not a great way of measuring things because even when I was doing this five years ago, it was inc- incredibly difficult for a data scientist starting out to get anywhere close to competitive because um, you were competing against teams of guys who were coming from large uh, tech companies, companies, um, and they had compute resources that you couldn't touch, like like
0: uh, pre-scraped data sets. <laughs> <laughs> they had results from the future. Um, they had
2: ground truth before anyone else did, and uh, yeah. Um, but I mean, even beside all of the cheating that we're talking about here, um, you know, as like a, a junior data scientist, you're just getting started with um, your first neural networks. You really can't compete with guys who are who have got you know multi GPU GPU units to train on. Um, and so you're never really gonna get to the top because it's you know the, the techniques are difficult on their own, but if you can't build a big enough model, how can you possibly play in that game? And so you're always gonna land up sort of somewhere in the middle. What I found helped me was um, not really worrying too much about the leaderboard. Um, I spent a lot of time on the on the forums for the various competitions wherein people would share their ideas, what kind of things they were doing, what approaches they were they were using and then I would try to implement those myself. Um, and I, I wasn't really too focused on like how well I was doing yeah. in the global space. I didn't want to win the competition. I mean, sure I, I did, because it was usually a monetary prize. I didn't <laughs> think I was going to win the competition, and I didn't plan to, uh, but I did learn a lot by actually just doing it. Yeah, and, and Grant, uh, you've talked in the past about
1: how there's some non-significant amount of kind of like mechanistic gaming where you're, I think the phrase you used in the past was you're overfitting to the test set that they're using. So it's almost like you're not necessarily building a model that generalizes so well and performs so well that you're at the top of the leaderboard. You're, you're kind of gaming the mechanisms of Kaggle. Right. And I, I can definitely see how that would be not necessarily translatable to a really effective career in data science. Right. Unless, of course, you're doing something like trying to uh, game Say the financial system to scrape pennies off the floor um, through mechanistic arbitrage. I mean, something like that. I I could see how it could, in
2: some cases, translate really well to a career, um, right? But not always. And I then agree. further to that, the difference between a winning algorithm on a Kaggle competition and a winning algorithm in exactly. real life are two different things. Mm-hmm. Um, you can build a giant, giant model that is way too complex that can solve a problem with a high accuracy, but can't be deployed into production because no one can afford it, and the delivery time and results are going to be too slow. Yep. And so that's not a solution for a business. And so if you're trying to become an actual data scientist who does actual work for actual industry, that is not the solution that so, yeah, you need
3: to. Create. That reminds me of the one that the the model that came out recently that said they can get like a huge like um, uh, percentage of accuracy to predict the weather in, in uh, six hours, like down to the, the exact, but it takes three days to. Run. <laughs> so what you could do is just find out what the weather was two and a
1: half days ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they used the uh, Kaggle cheating method. They look back at the weather reports. Um, yeah, so those were some of the key points that I had there. So I think for a lot of people, if you're getting started in data science, the Kaggle competitions can be a good way to get used to different kinds of data sets, solving different kinds of problems, as Grant is describing. Use the forums there to talk about what people are doing and learn how to solve different kinds of problems. I think that, that that's hugely valuable and I recommend that to a lot of students that take uh, my courses is a good way to show that you're interested in solving problems. It gives you something to talk about in interviews, and particularly if you can, if you really you know banged your head against the wall on some problem and, and made some breakthrough, that's the kind of thing that'll really show uh, well in an interview. Um, so you know if you're looking for experience and you haven't had difficulty landing your first internship, doing half a dozen different Kaggle competitions and really trying, not expecting to be top of the leaderboard, but just trying to solve these problems uh, and learning from those experiences. Especially if those competitions are in different kinds of fields, you know, do a machine vision one, do a natural language processing one, um, do some kind of stock prediction one, and uh, that'll give you a, a breadth of experience to talk about in interviews. Um, but the the big thing here is that in you know in practice, I think that as you become a real uh, a real data scientist in industry, I think you become less interested in Kaggle because exactly as you say, you're, you, you appreciate that the top models, they aren't realistic for production deployments. And guess what? Those top models that get fractions of a percentage better performance, despite being many orders of magnitude more computationally complex, um, that, that doesn't matter for most practical use cases. What matters actually in most use cases is performance time Uh, rather than a few fractions of a percent of accuracy. Anyway, uh, that brings us to the end of of this segment. Um, Up next, we have health. All right, I hope you enjoyed our segments on global breaking news and on sports. Up next, we have our health contingent, and Grant has something for us on a brilliant new innovation out of the always innovative Google DeepMind in London. Uh, This time, it's a protein folding algorithm called AlphaFold. Tell us all about it, Grant.
2: Sure. Um, I guess before we go into what they're actually doing, I guess maybe the why is helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, So protein folding is a really interesting problem in biology today. Uh, Essentially, we we generally know that... uh, we go from DNA to an amino acid sequence, and then
0: an amino acid sequence is just essentially a. you well, we might have yeah. to back up there a second, even uh, that. Uh, so, so, uh, so proteins. These are the kinds of they're they're everything that does work in our body, right? Basically, of course. And so, a, different kinds of proteins make up our skin, allow us to see, and everything. They create enzymes, which
2: have, you know, uh, chemical functions in the body: digesting, breaking things down, building things up. Um, they're fundamental to essentially every single biological process in every
0: single living organism. And, and the particular configuration of all of these proteins is encoded in our DNA and slight variations in those DNA sequences can lead to slight differences in protein function or of maybe even a totally ineffective protein. Right? Exactly.
2: Exactly. And so the basics of a protein is a long string of amino acids all joined together in a linear fashion. And once that whole string is put together, kind of like a string of beads, it folds into a a three-dimensional structure. And uh, that three-dimensional structure is a really critical part of how a protein works. It's important for for what makes the protein tick. Um, If a protein were to fold incorrectly, it doesn't work at all, and it's junk. Um, In fact, a lot of diseases are a result of proteins, perhaps folding incorrectly, that could be because of a a mutation. So there's a a a wrong amino acid in that string of beads. Um, It's like sickle cell anemia. Exactly. Um, So a problem in in biology is to try to predict from the known amino acid sequence, that's an easy enough thing for us to figure out these days with uh, genetic sequencing. But uh, if we know the the sequence of the amino acids, how do we predict what the 3D structure is um, of a protein? Uh, It's actually a really challenging problem, Um, and there are a couple of ways that we can find out the shape of a protein empirically. Uh, There are a few biological methods that we can use, but those methods are slow, they're expensive, and uh, they're really difficult. So at the moment, we have protein structures for around half the proteins in the human body, but of course we, we need structures for everything else. Now, Uh, there is this extra sort of paradox um, known as Levinthal's paradox. And that essentially states that in order to, if we were to try to guess the random structure of uh, a protein given its amino acid structure, it would take more than all of the time in the known universe (laughs) in order to generate every possible combination of structure that 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 string of of amino acids is capable of before you'd arrive at the correct one. Right. Now, in biology, a string of amino acids folds into the correct shape every time in a matter of milliseconds. So there's obviously some kind of ordered system creating that structure, but we just don't know what it is. We also don't have a really good means of predicting that yet. And so at the moment, there is this um, competition known as CASP, I, th- I think you'd say it, C-A-S-P, um, which is essentially a, a biological or a, a scientific competition wherein teams can assent- attempt to predict structures of proteins and that you'd get a score based on how well you do. And every year, everyone is you know trying to do better than the year before. Something akin to the ImageNet competitions in, in image recognition. Right. Now, um, this last year, Google entered with uh, a product called AlphaFold, and they essentially used a deep learning framework to design a model that could predict the structure. And they did this by predicting for every single pair of amino acids in a protein's uh, uh, length, they predict the distance that that amino acid would have from every other amino acid in the final folded structure. Mm. And then they also, you know, once the whole structure is folded together, each amino acid is gonna have some molecular bond with you know, its neighbors And they also predicted the angle of those bonds and using those two things together they could then construct a three-dimensional model of that protein
0: right
2: and um, they actually did exceptionally well this was the first time that they'd entered the competition uh, and they blew everyone else out the water Uh, one of the things that came up was um, i guess there are 43 proteins that you're asked to predict Um, The problem that they were specifically focused on was predicting a structure from the ground up. So all you get is the amino acid sequence and you come up with the protein. There are a few other categories, I guess. Uh, And they got 25 of the 43. They were the the model that got the closest answer. Um, Second place got three out of 43. Oh, my goodness. So they did it.
0: I guess it's the same as when deep learning was first moved into into the machine vision. Into machine vision, but it's even more extreme than that because so, so, so in ImageNet you already mentioned it the kind of machine vision benchmark I guess it's, it's kind of analogous. So CASP is to uh, protein folding as uh, ImageNet is to machine vision. Correct. And um, when when a deep learning model was entered into this ImageNet. Uh, large-scale visual recognition competition in 2012, that AlexNet algorithm out of the University of Toronto, it was 30%, it has had 30% fewer errors, um, which was huge and everybody took notice and that was kind of the uh, opening salvo of uh, deep learning that kind of led us to, so many people to talking about right. deep learning today, so many different applications. But this is a m- much bigger gap than that. I mean, that is a well, crazy sure. gap. And I guess maybe that comes down to the fact that, uh, you know, recognizing,
2: if- the, the subject of an image is actually a fairly simple task. We can right. do it. Um, but predicting the structure of a protein given an amino acid sequence is not a simple task and none of us can do it. In fact, no one can do it. I haven't tried. Maybe even tried. Also, <laughs> sort of low-key on the no website is He has there, very
0: right. thick glasses. He can just he's just like, yeah, you guys can't see how <laughs> this works. I mean, we all can do it, we just can't do it consciously. So uh <laughs> that's like,
2: right. Sorry. That's so, um, so yeah, it was I think that's perhaps why they did so much better was that the the problem that they were trying to solve is one that is sufficiently complex that it's not really solvable by uh, the human mind. And I think a lot of the the advances that were done in the ImageNet competition prior to deep learning were all sort of hand coding the recognition of spe- specific types of structures in images whereas in this problem there was no real way to do that because we could we you know we didn't have a really strong sense of how different combinations of amino acids come together. We had a few ideas we can predict alpha helices and beta sheets. Those are just, you know, particular types of structures that exist within proteins, but how those things then come together in, in a larger sense and create full tertiary protein sure, structures yeah. are not, um, not readily accessible to the human. Um, so it's, it was pretty impressive. Um, but sort of on the other side of that coin, it's nowhere near complete. Um, so one thing that they use for, uh, for assessing how well these models do is a thing called global distance score, uh, also abbreviated to GDT. I'm not really sure why the T is there. Um, and apparently, a score of sort of 85 to 90 would make uh, a model do really, really well in in the real world.
0: Right.
2: Uh, their average score was 63. Yeah. So it's better than it was before. We're We've better, advanced the know. state of the art, but we're not we're not really done, I guess. Yeah. Um, Great. Uh, do you
0: have a kind of a summary <laughs> point? <laughs> not a summary point. I d I'm
1: just I would love to see what this can teach us about prions when I talk about, <laughs> when we talk well, about protein folding. I did not folding, expect that to be I know. You, you mean, right. if you're gonna
0: talk about protein folding, you gotta talk about prions. You gotta talk about
1: prions. I mean, just as a-, a For the Bayesians out there, we're not
0: talking about priors. Yeah, it's something prions. completely different.
1: Yeah, not the ors, the ons. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, just by analogy, when we think about like fibrillation in the heart, that occurs when you're in a local minimum stable state of pacemaker cell firing in the heart, and you just need to kind of shake the board and get the ball to the global minimum, which is a stable heart rate. And the same thing can happen with protein configuration. There could be multiple uh, different stable configurations for a protein folding, and when you um, when you get into right. the wrong the the local minimum stable configuration, you can end up with something that can be very deleterious to other proteins in the body, and that's a prion. Right. The right. weird, not alive disease, right. um, like kretzfeld jakobs disease, uh, mad cow disease. And uh, I'd be interested to see what, what this model can teach us
2: about prions. But then we've got to the problem where we're looking for, uh, we can predict the structure of a prion. We already know the structure of prions. They've been studied extensively, so we have their three-dimensional structure. Uh, Now we're saying, okay, here's the amino acid structure. Uh, This amino acid should actually generate a correct protein, but it's actually generating this error error protein, a prion, and that causes disease. And the machine is not ever gonna predict the error one. And if it does predict, sorry, the, uh, the, yeah, it's not gonna predict the error one. And if it does predict the error one, what we really want, the information that we're looking for is why and figuring out the why within a deep learning framework is notoriously difficult. So I don't know how useful that's going to be, or at least we're going to have to find some way to interrogate the model.
0: Yeah, super interesting. And I guess also this would also be relevant uh, in addition to Mad Cow disease, things like uh, beta amyloid plaques and Alzheimer's, I guess, as well? Similar. Potentially, uh, affecting a lot of people. And so uh, this group, Google DeepMind, if you haven't heard of them, definitely worth checking out. They have come up with uh, year after year of um, benchmark busting results. Um, across uh, video game playing algorithms first with Atari, um, and that got them acquired by Google. They were just DeepMind before that. Um, and, and with their AlphaGo algorithm, which uh, was able to be the world's best Go player by far, who recently retired, saying that there's no point in playing Go anymore because uh, you know I know that I can't be better than this entity. On on Earth. A lot of structural Um, biochemists that have seen the (laughs) writing on the wall. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, so really really brilliant innovation uh, coming up from those guys. All right, so uh, that wraps up our health section, and we just have one left for you. It's going to be fun. All right, we've covered global headline news, sports, and health so far on our inaugural episode of A4N, the Artificial Neural Network News Network. uh, and now we have a, a short final segment it's from the classifieds section of the news program and um, this is about uh, hiring smarter than the market when you're when you're doing a hiring so a classified section it used to be a section of the uh, newspaper um, probably not often on an actual radio program but who knows um, <laughs> where uh, pe- where people could look for jobs or jobs could be posted um, and so I, I read this piece, uh, which we'll share uh, with all of the listeners. Um, it's called How to Hire Smarter Than the Market, um, a Toy Model. It's by Eric Bernhardsen, who has released a lot of thoughtful uh, data science, uh, data-driven thinking over the years. In this one, he used simulated data and some simple models that he composed on those simulated data to uh, draw what in the end ended, ended up being some relatively straightforward conclusions. So. Um, Essentially, what he did was he said, if you wanna hire the most capable people, for example, the software developers who are um, technically the best software developers for your role, then consider ignoring attributes that the rest of the market values. Um, So consider ignoring attributes that the rest of the market values uh, and that you don't. So he listed some examples of those kinds of things. So candidates from non-fancy schools candidates who didn't go to school at all and are self-taught or have some non-traditional path into the field, Um, candidates who didn't get a CS degree, a computer science degree, candidates who never worked at any well-respected company, candidates who are low confidence, um, so they might interview poorly, Um, candidates that could experience discrimination for other reasons like being from underrepresented uh, groups or somehow uh, not fitting in with some stereotype of what a software engineer should look like, candidates who need visa sponsorships, candidates who don't have your exact tech stack, but could be strong uh, generalists, and uh, candidates who left the workforce for a while to take care of family, for example, so. I just want to point out that I am all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I know you're a great data scientist.
2: <laughs> rest <of> my case.
0: <laughs> um, so, uh, kind of a, a, a straightforward point there, um, and, and, and maybe I'm just gonna go right into uh, my last and, and final point, we can talk about all of those uh, points in the context of this. Uh, final uh, article, which is a, it's an interview um, on Floyd Hub. So Floyd Hub is a tool that allows you to use uh, Jupyter notebooks uh, for fairly effortlessly uh, building models that can be deployed on really high-octane servers. And um, so they talked with a former intern of theirs named Emil Wallner, and Emil Wallner, he comes from such a non-traditional background. So he has specific recommendations for how you could position yourself as an excellent um, AI researcher talent, um, despite uh, coming from a non-traditional background. So um, uh, so he talks about um, a specific path that you could follow. So he specifically recommends this Fast.AI course, spending three months on that, um, then spending three to 12 months doing personal projects, reproducing papers, uh, doing consulting, And then uh, flashcarding the deep learning book for four to six months. So this is Ian Goodfellow, um, Aaron Aaron Corville, and uh, Yoshua Bengio's book, Deep Learning, published by MIT Press. Um, It's a a kind of canonical book in the field. And he recommends spending four to six months. um, I guess flashcarding would mean writing the key points on flashcards and then quizzing yourself. Uh, And then doing the same thing on Approximately a hundred papers in a niche for two months of so flashcarding on those, and then publishing your first paper. He suggests, I mean, that's going to be, I think, well, you'd have to be very focused to get that done. I guess you wouldn't have a job um, to get from uh, nothing to a few within a few months publishing your first paper. Um, but you know I like his ideas in general. I, I recommend reading the blog post in its, in its entirety if you're looking to become some kind of machine learning researcher. There's lots of great tips in there. He does manch- mention capital competitions um, as one way to get some experience. Uh, and then the final point is, is really ties in with the, the first piece that I was talking about from Eric uh, Bernhardson, which is this idea that if you want to attract self-taught AI talent, then try hiring based on portfolio um, as opposed to based on resume, um, have trans- 100% transparent requirements, don't require cover or recommendation letters, nor theory questions, offer on-the-job training, and facilitate part-time PhDs and transitions into research roles. So I don't know if people just have general thoughts on, uh, you know, so for people listening who are maybe interested in, in breaking into machine learning, if we think these tips are, are useful.
2: I think that if you were to follow everything that he said, you'd be pretty well set up for uh, for a job. I think that, that would it would be hard to not get hired in that situation. Mm-hmm. I also think maybe that's a lot of what he said is a little overkill. Uh, it depends right. on the job you want, I suppose, right, right, right. and uh, who you are. You know, perhaps some people are more dedicated than others. Uh, as someone who I guess I consider myself a self-taught um, AI, you are for sure person. Yeah. Um, I didn't do a lot of the things that he said. I mean, to be fair, Ian Goodfellow's book wasn't really out when I was doing it, but <clears throat> even if it was, I doubt I was going to spend four to six months flashcarding the entire book. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's definitely a middle ground between what he said and and, and what is absolutely necessary, you know, minimum viable product or, or whatever it is. But I guess it also becomes a function of the kind of job you're looking for. If you, if you want to go work for... You know, Google Deep Mind. Maybe you do
0: need to step your game up. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and I think, and there's also I, you do also you have some advantages. You know, you do have some of the things. You know, your resume is, is pretty good too. You know, you have a PhD and that kind of thing. So it's uh, you know, you know, in a quantitative discipline, and uh, so the you know, so I guess he he could be making the point that if you come from true. a non traditional background, you might need to fight a little bit more. Um, and I think yeah, he was specifically. I think he ended up now being hired. He is working as a uh, AI researcher at Google, which is a particularly, you know, we're not even talking about applications. We're talking about more or less, uh, I don't know, pure AI research makes much sense to to kind of define, but that kind of idea of. Um, being a researcher and publishing papers and so what was his background did, did he go to college did he have a degree of any kind uh i can't remember all the details now but he he had this long and storied journey um involved work all over the world in various kinds of fields i can't remember if he had actually gone right. to uh and done any i guess it's safe to say education.
2: he doesn't have a phd in statistics for sure
0: <laughs> okay. You know, one of
1: my thoughts when I read the uh, Eric Bernhardson's article, great article, and I think, as you said, it kind of was pretty in line with a lot of our intuitive sense of the arbitrary nature sometimes of some of the hard requirements in job postings. But if we look at the entire list, it, it seems to, in many ways, call into question almost all of the factors that are traditionally used to discriminate between quality of candidates and not that i have a problem with that at all but how in light of all of these do you actually do that like how do you actually tell the difference between someone who didn't go to a non-fancy school didn't go to school at all doesn't have a cs degree never worked for a well-respected company who interviews poorly and is good from someone who has all those traits and isn't great
0: i guess that's that's actually so that's Uh, I feel like Emil Wallner in his piece kind of answered some of those questions. So it's this idea that if you, if your interview process involves, instead of evaluating, like essentially all of those things um, that he listed, maybe not all of them, but the vast majority of them are things that you can tell from somebody's resume, maybe all of them you can. And so the idea here is going from not not having a resume based um, application process but saying, okay, uh, we're gonna do this based on your portfolio. Now that said, I think you can still use a resume to showcase your portfolio work. And so maybe that's kind of the middle ground because it's, you know, the reality is you can't go out and talk or evaluate the portfolio of every single applicant that comes to you. Having a piece of paper that summarizes what you're like um, is critical, but, you you know, so if somebody can say, even if their whole resume was just a portfolio and then it links to their GitHub profile or maybe something that would be, if this just came to me off the top of my head, but if you want to demonstrate that you're a great candidate for some kind of data science or data engineering role, you could build some simple web app that maybe somebody can upload something into or and it kind of works in real time. I mean, that would be a really good demonstration of your quality that I think would be more important you know if you were looking for someone for a junior level role and they built a web app that is able to you know that you can draw a handwritten digit and then it classifies that digit that seems pretty cool if they built right. that from scratch yeah. i think also we're maybe looking at it from uh,
2: emile's perspective a little too much uh, hiring is a two way street and a big problem in hiring as we all know is finding quality candidates is difficult right. and then once you find those quality candidates Sometimes it's actually difficult to even hire them because there are other companies that are also trying to hire them. And so he draws the distinction, um, this Eric gentleman, uh, in his article about the kinds of people that you want to hire and then the key people that will even bother coming in for an interview with you because right. you know, you're, maybe your company isn't prestigious enough or you aren't offering enough pay. And so he talks about how when you put those two parameters on one, one you're sort of cutting things off at the bottom and anything below this line is not good enough for us. On the other side, anything above a certain line is not—you're you're not good enough for them—and right. so there's a narrower band of people that that you have access to. And he's what he's saying is that you know within those limitations, you might not be able to get the kinds of people you want who have computer science degrees and also have you know five years experience and so on and so forth. So perhaps within that space, it's more useful to look for people with non-traditional backgrounds, and you might
0: find more of what you're looking for in other realms. Yeah, that's exactly what his uh, simulated data and his models suggest. That's a great uh, way to summarize it. So uh, it's been wonderful having you listening to our first uh, inaugural episode of A4N, the artificial uh, neural network news network. Uh, We talked about uh, real-time facial recognition and the kind of privacy related issues related to that and the technology behind it. Uh, we talked about uh, data science competitions and how those can be cheated on uh, and have been now prominently. We talked about uh, deep learning algorithms that are markedly uh, changing the way that uh, protein folding is being done, so some uh, uh, health research. And then now we've wrapped things up with a discussion of, um, of, of artificial intelligence careers and uh, how you might uh, break into them or non-traditional approaches to getting into them. So um, I think uh, if we go around and just everyone gets the opportunity to say their name for uh, viewers listening at home, you'll be able to. Uh, if you're not watching our YouTube uh, video version uh, and you're just listening to this, um, you'll now be able to piece together kind of who everyone was. So over on this side, which is the right side, left,
2: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should we should use side. This. the Over on the correct side, my name is
0: Grant. Sorry, I spoke over you. Did my name is Grant. And I'm Vince. And I'm Andrew. And I'm John Crone, and I uh, kind of introduced the segments here today. Um, I hope you enjoyed this very much. Um, We have uh, uh, Twitter handles uh, that we can provide to you. I'm uh, John Crone Learns on Twitter. Uh, Mine is Grant, B-E-Y. And it seems like that might be the end of our Twitter handles. Yeah, I don't know that. And Vince shaking his head as well. Um, You can head to my website, j o n k r o h n J-O-N-K-R-O-H-N.com. I have an email newsletter that you can sign up for. We'll make sure that you get updated on any new episodes of A4N. And you're also uh, welcome to add us on LinkedIn. Just mention that you were a listener on A4N and uh we will be uh well i will be at least i'm not going to speak for everyone else happy to accept your invitation uh many thanks to untapped um uh, for whom all of us work um for uh you know bringing us together and uh enabling us to do something like this and also to our producers and Maria, and also to whoever makes the theme song for this show in the future that could be you listener Or it could be Vince. Um, (laughs) We're hoping it's you, (laughs) listening Yeah, save us from Vince's theme song. (laughs) It can be you. Please do it. All right. um, See you next time, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.